Well, good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25? If you're new with us, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we're in Matthew 25, and Matthew 25 is a continuation of a teaching Jesus began to give his disciples, which started in chapter 24, in response to a couple of questions that they had asked him, the primary one being, what will be the signs of his coming to end this present evil age of man's rebellion and to establish the kingdom age? This teaching was given on the Mount of Olives, and so therefore it is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. But in verses 4 through 28 of Matthew 24, the Lord lays out the signs that would precede his second coming, culminating in his return to the earth with power and great glory, which he talks about in verses 29 to 31. And from that point, he gives a series of warnings and admonitions for his disciples to be watching and ready. And in chapter 25, the Lord concludes his teaching by adding three more parables that warn his followers to watch and be ready for his return. The first is the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins in verses 1 to 13. The second is the parable of the talents in verses 14 to 30. And the third is the story of the separation of the sheep and the goats in verses 31 to 46. Now, in each of these parables, the Lord is driving home an important point that he wanted his disciples, including all of us, to understand. But together, listen, add intensity. They're like the culmination, the climax of everything he's gotten done teaching. So they add intensity to everything he's just gotten done teaching about being vigilant in watching and faithful in serving him as his disciples, especially those who will be, who will be living during the days just prior to his return. Now, the first parable, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, I got to tell you guys, I believe it's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied parables of all the parables that Jesus gave during his earthly ministry. And the reason for that is that many try to make the ten virgins the church. And that leads to wrong conclusions and false doctrine. May I say it one more time for the sake of those who are new? And I promise this is the last time I'll say it. Remember, as we have been emphasizing throughout chapter 24, uh, that in chapters 24 and 5, it's all one teaching. It's all the Olivet Discourse. And in this discourse, Jesus, listen, is not addressing Christians, which means the church is not in view. Now, if you're new with us, that's a bombshell. What are you talking about? He's not addressing Christians. Well, all the Bible is written for us, but not all of it is written directly to us. We can learn things, of course, but we have to be careful who is the focus, all right? Remember, the church at this point, the Lord is only a couple days from the cross. At this point in his ministry, the church isn't going to be born yet for another 55 days on Pentecost. These men... We're not thinking like New Testament Christians yet. That didn't really start happening until Pentecost when they were filled with the Spirit. At this point, they're thinking like, and rightfully so, Old Testament Jews. Of course, they don't know they're Old Testament Jews. They don't, you know, but at this point, we would look at them as thinking like Old Testament Jews. And because of it, we need to understand that the two questions the disciples asked Jesus were, listen, Jewish questions asked by Jewish men who were looking for a Jewish Messiah to establish a Jewish kingdom. Remember, the kingdom was promised 
all the way back in the Old Testament. A day when Messiah would come and establish a new kingdom where he would reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth. They were looking for that for thousands of years. Therefore, the events that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24 and the parables that he gives in chapter 25 are directed primarily, although not exclusively, at Jews who will be living during the period the New Testament calls the tribulation period, but the Old Testament refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble, as the time of Jacob's trouble. We can see this clearly from the context. We've talked about this. Jesus talked about Judea in chapter 24, verse 16. Uh, he talked about the Sabbath. Pray that your flight, when the Antichrist is of his image in the Holy Holy, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath, verse 20. Why do we care as Gentiles, uh, whoever's living in the world when, when Antichrist sets up his image in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, why do we care if it's on the Sabbath for? Here in Israel, on the Sabbath, you can't get a plane, you can't get a, a taxi, you can't get out of town except by foot. And then he talks about the prophecies of Daniel concerning the Jewish people in Matthew 24, verse 15. Look, Israel is in view in, in these chapters, not the church. The church is raptured. The church is gone before the Antichrist makes its appearance on the, on the world scene and the seven-year tribulation period begins. Here's the thing. Even though commentators point out that the church is called a chaste virgin by Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 11:2, and therefore the ten virgins they say in this parable are speaking of Christians, listen to me. Paul never calls the church the chaste virgins, plural. Here we've got ten virgins. Paul always referred to the church as the virgin, singular bride of Christ. We're one body. Once again, as we have talked about parables, especially when we're in chapter 13, that a parable is an earthly story designed to teach a spiritual truth. But it's a simple story drawn from something that would have been familiar to those that Jesus was talking to. In this context, again, he was speaking to Jewish men. These Jewish men, well, they understood something very well, and that was Jewish wedding customs, okay? And that really is what this parable is drawn from. Let's read it. Verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed... They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, Jesus said, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, as I said, this is a parable that's drawn from their understanding of Jewish wedding customs. And a Jewish marriage consisted of three parts. Three parts. The first of which was the engagement. The engagement. Now, most marriages back then, if not all, were arranged by the fathers of the bride and groom. Sometimes when the kids were quite young. And sometimes even before they were born. Because if you were very close to another family, a lot of times the dads would get together and go, Look, 
when our wives have kids, if you have a boy and I have a girl, let's get them together. Like, let's marry them. Or vice versa. Because, you know, that will make our families even closer, right? So sometimes these marriages were arranged even before the kids were born. But this, um, this engagement amounted to a contract of marriage where the man and the woman were promised to be given to each other in marriage when the proper time came, usually in their mid-teens, okay, 14, 15, 16, right around there. Now, the second stage was the betrothal. This was the actual marriage ceremony during which the bride and groom exchanged vows in the presence of family and friends. During this period, even though the couple was now considered, listen, legally married, so much so that if one died, the other would be considered a widow or a widower, at this point, even though they were considered legally married, the marriage wasn't consummated and the couple didn't live together. You see, at this point, it was his responsibility now to go off to his father's house and build them an apartment to live in, as we would call it, okay? I mean, why his father's house? Because that's where his inheritance was. That, that's where his inheritance was. So it was customary for the son then, if, after he was engaged, to go over to his father's house and build them what was called a bridal chamber. We would know it as an apartment where they would then eventually move in and live. Didn't Jesus say, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, speaking to his bride, the church? I'm going back to my father, the father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And uh, if, I, if I go away, I'm going to come again to receive you to myself, that where I am there you might be also. So he goes off now, this young man, to build them an apartment. And that would lead, and, and it could take a year or more, actually, okay? And that would lead to the third and final stage of the Jewish wedding, the wedding feast. Now, when the bridal chamber was finished, it was the groom's father who gave the order to his son to go get his bride. That was his right, his responsibility. You know, these Jewish fathers were rascals, okay? They wanted to have some fun with this. I mean, a kid's building this thing for a year or more. He wants to go get his bride, right? And, uh, and move in with her. And so, you know, he's got this thing just about done, right? But the father gave him a hard time walking around. Eh, I don't really like the way you hung that door. You didn't fix that. And, ah, that looks a little, it doesn't look right. You need to work on that some more. You know, Dad, you're killing me. You know, no, just go ahead and get it, get it right. You know, get it perfect. And then what happened typically is the father would wait, you know, until midnight or even the middle of the night, you know, kind of just, again, having some fun with this. And at one point, unbeknownst to the son, he would come and wake his son up and say, son, it's time, go get your bride. The son, the bridegroom, didn't know when the father was going to actually tell him to get his bride. That was the father's right. Jesus said, look, no man knows the day of the hour. I don't even know, nor the angels of heaven, when the time will be right. But my father only knows when that time will be, when I am going to come to get my bride, is the idea. And so the father would say at one point, okay, son, it's time, go get your bride. Now the groom would quickly round up his closest friends, and they would go running through the streets of Jerusalem or whatever village they lived in, blowing trumpets and shouting with excitement. That trumpet blowing, guys, and that shouting as they were coming to get the bride was the only warning that she had that signaled that her bridegroom was coming. It was the job of the bridesmaids to be watching for the bridegroom's coming. And what you may not realize is it was customary back then for the bridesmaids to, to also be unmarried virgins. Hence, the ten virgins in this parable are bridesmaids, bridesmaids, which they would have understood readily. Now, it was their job to be watching. You say, well, yeah, but they didn't know when the bridegroom was going to come. Not exactly they didn't, but the bridegroom had a friend called the friend of the bridegroom. We would call him the best man today. 
He was the liaison between the bridegroom and the girls. They, they weren't to see him, and vice versa. So he would periodically give them updates. Yeah, he's laid the foundation. Okay, things are moving ahead. Okay, the walls are up, right? And Oh, today he put the roof on. You know, and Now he knew, the friend of the bridegroom knew when it was, it was pretty much done. And so he would tell the girls, look, he's going to come to get her at any time, you bridesmaids. And so they would go into what was, we would call a candlelight vigil. But they used oil burning lamps and they would remain up. You know, and they knew these fa Jewish fathers were rascals. They knew he would probably tell the, his son to get the bride midnight, middle of the night. But they knew they had to be ready. It was their responsibility to make sure that their lamps were ready, the wicks were trimmed, and they had plenty of oil because they knew at any time, probably in the middle of the night, the bridegroom would come, so they needed to be ready. Now, as the bridegroom and his friends came, they would, you know, shouting, excitement, and blowing trumpets, they would storm the house where the bride was and literally, listen, snatch her away. Snatch her away. And the bridegroom would take her back to the father's house, to the bridal chamber. The marriage was consummated, and then the wedding feast would begin. Now listen, those bridesmaids that were not ready for the bridegroom's coming were considered to have dishonored the bride and the groom. What do you mean you're not ready? This is a big deal. You have to understand, in that culture, a marriage was a big deal. It's, the celebration lasted between 7 and 14 days. See, that's a long wedding feast. Well, you have to understand something. They didn't have the opportunities for recreation and leisure and so on that we have. They didn't have, you know, work five days, get two days off. They didn't have vacations and, and, and times of leisure and recreation like we do. All they had was their feast days and special events like a marriage ceremony. And that was it. The rest of the time they worked like dogs in the fields. So this was a huge thing for the whole community, the whole town, all right? What do you mean you girls aren't ready? What do you mean you haven't taken enough oil? You're dishonoring. Obviously, it's not a big deal to you, is it? They dishonored the bride and groom. Now, from what Jesus says in the parable, which I haven't been able to corroborate in history as I've read this, it seems as though those bridesmaids that were not ready, who dishonored the bridegroom and the bride, they were excluded from the wedding feast. Look, in this parable, Jesus mentions the bridegroom. He mentions the bridesmaids but not the bride. The church is the bride, right? The church is not the bridesmaids. The church is not the ten virgins. The church is the bride. Why isn't she mentioned? She's not the focus. She's not the focus of this parable. He's directing this parable at Jewish men, telling them that those Jews who will be alive in this what we know as the tribulation period, the time just prior to his return to establish the kingdom, they're going to have to be ready. You're going to have Jews who are believers. You're going to have Jews who are unbelievers. But even unbelieving Jews know the scriptures. They are raised with the knowledge of the scriptures. A lot of folks who have been raised in the church go into Awanas when they were kids. They know the word. They know the gospel. They're just not living it, right? It's a lot of Jews like that who will be around in the tribulation period, just prior to when the bridegroom comes. And once again, remember, parables aren't designed to communicate truth in an exhaustive way, down to the smallest detail. We know that the Bible teaches the church, as the bride of Christ, is going to return with Jesus at his second coming to establish the kingdom. You can read about that in Revelation 19. 
Here comes Jesus, and all of his saints are with him wearing white robes. That's his church, his bride. But again, the focus of the parable is being directed at those Jews who will be alive on the earth when the Lord returns with his bride. Author J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote, The Peshetta, which is the Syriac translation of the New Testament, the Peshetta of this parable says that the virgins went forth to meet the bridegroom and the bride. So in that translation, they include the bride. McGee says, which means that the bridegroom is coming from the marriage to the marriage supper. He said, it is my understanding that although the marriage of Christ and the church takes place in heaven, the marriage supper takes place on this earth. He said, a passage in the Gospel of Luke substantiates this. And then he quotes from Luke 12, starting in verse 35. And some of the language Jesus uses is a little different from what we're looking at, but you can tell he's talking about the same incident. And even some of the language is the same. He said, talking to his disciples, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master for when he will return from the wedding. And when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Amazing. The Lord of glory serving his people. Verse 38, And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch, those will be in the middle of the night, from midnight to 6 a.m. If he comes, second watch, third watch, and finds them so, what? Watching, ready. Blessed are those servants. Verse 40, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And McGee concludes by saying, You see, the wedding has taken place, and the bride is with him. Obviously, if he is coming from the wedding, the bride is with him. So here in the parable of the ten virgins, Christ, pictured as the bridegroom, is bringing the bride with him. And the believers on earth are waiting for him to come. While the great tribulation has been going on upon the earth, Christ has been yonder in heaven with his bride, the church. Then at the conclusion of the seven-year tribulation, he comes back to earth with the church, end quote. All right, just to give you some of that background, which is necessary to understand the parable, we need to understand it, what it's really saying, before we can make application, right? So let's kind of go over it again quickly, all right? Fill in some blanks you may have, have in your thinking. Again, verse 1. Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, be careful because many commentators want to make the oil in this parable a reference to the Holy Spirit. And I understand why they do that, because in the Old Testament, oftentimes oil is used as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. But be careful because you can't assume because it's used in one place as a reference to the Holy Spirit, you can apply that across the board. The problem with making the oil in this parable represent the Holy Spirit is that the parable would then be teaching that a person can possess the Holy Spirit, but run out of him. They need to go buy more? What does that mean? Okay? I mean, you know, once I'm a Christian, I get the Holy Spirit, but I can run out? And where do I go to buy some more Holy Spirit? Who sells that? 
See, this is where wrong interpretations lead to faulty doctrine. When you make the ten virgins the church, Christians, what are you teaching? And here's what they are teaching. They're teaching, well, see, five were, they're all Christians. Five were wise. What does that mean? Well, they continued walking with the Lord, walking in the Spirit, holy, and so on. <laughs> Those Christians who don't continue walking in the Spirit don't continue living a holy life, defining it as they choose. Well, they're going to wind up being lost and going to hell. This is the problem. When you don't interpret these things properly, it's going to naturally lead you to wrong conclusions and false doctrine. As we look at other places in the New Testament, remember the night before Jesus went to the cross in John 14 in the upper room. He's talking to his disciples, saying to them, look, I'm going away soon. I'm going back to the Father. Where I'm going, you can't come with me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. Remember we just talked about that? I'll come to receive you to myself. Take you to be with me. That where I am, there you'll be with me. But while I'm gone, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you how long? Do you run out? Forever, right? And then he said, I will come to you in verse 18, signifying that Jesus would live in our hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, there are a lot of Christians who think that once you're saved, you can lose your salvation and go to hell. I don't believe that. Because Jesus said, once the Spirit of God comes inside of you, he abides with you forever. Once you're saved, you're always saved, if you're really saved. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But in Hebrews chapter 13, as the writer in verse 5 is quoting something else the Lord said, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, if he's living inside of us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, who will abide with us forever, and the Lord confirms it later on, that I will never leave you nor forsake you, I think it's pretty sure that once we are truly saved with the Spirit of God inside of us, we're not running out of oil, okay? The light's never going to go out. You say, but yeah, but... It went out here in this parable with these five foolish virgins. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think that even though in the Old Testament, oil is often used as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, and this parable, because the oil is connected with an oil-burning lamp, which was, listen, used to be a light in the darkness to keep people from stumbling as they walked, obvious. I see the oil and lamp in this parable as a reference to the Word of God. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105? Your word is a what? Lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. Now, please try to hear me. I don't want to lose you, all right? In many places in the, New Te the Gospels, as Jesus is giving parables, the one thing he is stressing over and over is that often among those who call themselves God's people, who believe in God, God of the Bible, and so on, and maybe even go to a church like ours, some of them are genuine believers. Some of them are not. Some of them are genuine Christians. Some of them are not. Those people who come to church and hear God's word, and maybe they begin to walk in that light for a little while, but because the Holy Spirit is really not in their hearts, they really haven't made a commitment to Jesus, they know they need God, and their life is probably not doing so well, and all right, where do I go find God? I go to church, and, you know, they come, and they start hanging out with you guys, and you're filled with the Spirit, and your light is shining, and they think, I, this is what I need. I need God, right? So they hang out with you. They listen to the Word, and what happens? They begin to change a little bit. They begin to take on your personality, your character, to a certain degree. They begin to walk in the light of God's truth for a while. 
But because they don't have the Holy Spirit really within them, they're really just kind of reflecting your light because there is no light really in them. Eventually the light goes out because they walk away and just put it all behind them. I see this all the time. People who come to church for a while get all excited about Jesus and the Word and come to Bible studies like crazy and then for a few months and then all of a sudden they're gone. Try to call them, well, you know, it really wasn't for me. I tried it, but, and they're gone. I believe that's who the five foolish virgins represent. And then there are others who hear the word, the gospel. They've received Jesus into their hearts, at which time the Holy Spirit moves in, the spirit of oil and light, giving them a never-ending source of these things. And these folks begin to walk in that light. They begin to walk in it the rest of their lives. And those folks who are alive in the tribulation period who have received Christ in truth, who have the Holy Spirit within them, the Spirit who Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, when he comes, because they're genuine and their light continues to shine, they will be allowed to enter the millennial kingdom. Remember what Jesus said in John 8? Talking to a group of disciples, which he knew some were real, some were not. He said, if you continue in my what? If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The word continue in the Greek is the word meno, which means to remain. You are my disciples indeed, which means truly. Jesus is saying, if you remain in my word, if my word abides in you and you abide in it, then you are truly my disciples. Guys, the only way we know if somebody is really genuine is we just have to wait and see if they continue to follow the Lord, you know, over a long period of time. I mean, there are people who come into the church. They mean well. They, they really are looking for something. But they don't really make a commitment to Christ. They're not really willing to take up their cross and die to self, you know. So they kind of hang out for a while, make some changes, but they're not really born again. The Spirit really is not inside of them. Eventually they forsake it all go back to the old life. That's all they really know, Right. They don't abide. They don't remain in the Word of God. They don't walk in its light on a continual basis. Now you say, well, wait a minute. In the parable, though, Jesus said all ten bridesmaids slept. That's true, verse 5. That while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Yes, the unbelievers slept, the foolish virgins. They slept because they were still of the darkness. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks of, he's contrasting, children of light, children of darkness. He talks about how children of darkness sleep at night, get drunk at night, because they're of the night, the darkness. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He says, um, therefore, let us not sleep as others do. In other words, those who are genuine Christians, but be watching and sober. Now, again, people say, well, wait a minute, though. Even the wise virgins who had enough oil, they slept. What does that mean? It simply means this. It's possible to be a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, and stop watching for his return and fall asleep in the light. There's a lot of Christians who are not watching for the Lord's return. I talked to somebody after first service. This, uh, he has a friend that goes to a, a church in the area, and they never teach prophecy. He has no idea what these prophecies mean. He's never heard of most of them. You can't watch for the Lord's return if you don't know the signs. You don't know the signs if you don't read the scriptures or have it taught to you from the pulpit. There are Christians who can fall asleep in the light. What does that mean? Well, they start living carnal lives. They're not walking vigilantly. They're not looking for the Lord's return, which will keep them holy. 
Those who have this hope within them purify themselves even as Jesus Christ is pure, John said in 1 John 3, 3. What, what hope? The hope of his coming at any time to get us out of here, the rapture. If I'm always looking for the Lord's return to rapture his church, I'm not going to get entangled in the cares of this life. If you're not watching, you're going to fall asleep in the light. You're going to start living a carnal life. Now listen to me. When Jesus comes with the rapture, he's going to find many who are ashamed at his appearing, the Bible says. They're going to heaven because we're saved by grace. But do you really want the Lord to take you in the rapture and you stand before him with your head bowed in shame? That you were living totally for the world, wrapped up in all the cares of this life? You were not living full on for Jesus? I don't want him to come and find me doing that. I want him to come and find me faithfully watching and serving. So when he comes, he can wrap his arms around me and you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were watching. You were working. You were faithful. I, I want to hear that. And it's possible for a genuine believer in Jesus to stop watching for his return and fall asleep in the light. Paul tried to wake these folks up in, in Romans chapter 13 when he said, knowing this, it's, it is now high time to awake out of sleep. He's talking to Christians. Wake up. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Well, Paul could say that 2,000 years ago. I tell you, we're really close. And if Paul was alive today, he'd be screaming this. Wake up, church. The Lord's coming at any moment. What are you doing with your life? Where are you, how are you living your life? Are you living like the world or are you living for the Lord? Is the idea. Here, let's go back and finish the parable. Pick it up at verse 6. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. The wedding feast is the idea. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour at which the Son of Man is coming. And once again, at the end of this parable, Jesus emphasized the importance of watching for his return, which simply means to stay alert and be awake. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins contains several lessons I think that everyone needs to understand. Even those of us who are Christians living right now, okay, even though its focus is primarily to Jews saved and unsaved during the tribulation period, there's many applications we can make to folks today and even in our lives as Christians. Let me just give them to you, okay? The first lesson I think we can learn from this parable is to fight as Christians, to fight the temptation to become weary watching for Jesus' return because you've been waiting for so long and he hasn't come back yet. I think that was the lesson in verse 5. Jesus coming for his church at the rapture has been promised for 2,000 years. Every generation thinks because of the events happening around them that this is it. We're out of here, man. And yet we're still here, okay? I mean, in the 4th century, and I'm just giving a couple examples. In the 4th century A.D., Diocletian, so the Roman emperor, so persecuted the church, they thought he was the Antichrist, which meant the rapture is going to be, you know, the kingdom is coming, right? During World War II, Christians thought Hitler was the Antichrist. Mussolini was the false prophet. They said, oh, that's it. This is the, what the Bible was talking about. Look, it's always good 
to live in such a way as the Lord could come at any time. But over the years, people have predicted the Lord's return, often setting a day and a time. The Bible says we can't do it. No one knows the day nor the hour, right? And so you have a lot of people, when I first got saved, we were all convinced the Lord was coming uh, in 1981, before June something. I forgot why we believed that, but, you know, I was a young Christian. What did I know? I just, it sounds good to me. It didn't come, right? Then I think, what, 1988, some guy was circulating 88 reasons the rapture was going to happen in 1988. Everyone got excited, you know, and I saw bumper stickers, you know, and then that didn't happen. Then you had guys like Harold Campin who predicted a couple of times. The Lord was coming. This is the date. The date came and went. So a lot of Christians who got excited about those, those dates and nothing ever happened, some of them are like, ah, he's not coming back. Or they just feel like, well, he won't be back in my lifetime. What happened? They go out and live carnal lives. Look, it's always wrong. To allow the delays of Jesus. Let me just say this. Jesus is not delayed. He's right on time. Okay? We think he's supposed to come at certain times. No. When he comes, know this. He'll be right on time. Right? But for those who think, ah, he's not coming. It's always wrong. In fact, Jesus it's an evil servant that says, the Lord, my Lord delays his coming. And begins to live a carnal life. Make no mistake about it, guys. He is coming. He is coming. I love the illustration my pastor used to like to give along these lines. He used, to, he used to talk about a pregnant woman who had a due date. And the due date came, and the child didn't come. Then a week passed, the child still didn't come. A second week passed, the child still wasn't born. What does the father or the husband say? Ah, uh, she's not pregnant. She's never going to have a kid. No, he knows the kid's got to come sometime. I mean, the signs are all there. Our Lord is coming. The signs are all there. When he comes, you know, he's going to be right on time. But a lot of people will be caught off guard. That's the second point. When Jesus comes, he'll come unexpectedly to many and catch them unprepared. I think that was the lesson of verse 6. Listen, Christians, listen to what John said. Now little children abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Again, we want to make sure that we are living in such a way that we are honoring the Lord. We're not getting carried away and tangled with the cares of this life, but that we're every day we're watching for his return and working faithfully until he comes. He's going to catch many by surprise. Many so-called Christians who go to church are going to be caught off guard. In fact, as somebody once said, I think it was McGee himself, the Sunday after the rapture, many churches in America will not be missing a single member. Ouch. Because they go to church, but they don't know the Lord. I hope this church is completely empty. There's one or two of you here, which I pray there isn't. Make sure the lights are off when you leave. All right, number three. Third lesson. Just joking. Please don't be left behind. Please don't be left behind. Third lesson. Make sure you're a genuine believer in Jesus. You can't be saved by virtue of someone else's faith. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying, as a saved person, you can't share your faith with an unsaved person and have them come to Christ. That's how we evangelize, right? What I am saying is simply this. 
that because your mom or your dad is saved and you grew up in a Christian home, or your wife is saved and she goes to church all the time and reads the Bible in the house all the time and has put scriptures up around the house, that somehow you feel you're in a holy environment now, and her faith is going to cover you so that when she goes to heaven, you're going to come in our, our coattails and follow her. Wrong. Wrong. Okay? One author put it this way. Let me quote this. I think it was good. He said, Many find fault in this parable with the five wise virgins for not sharing their oil with the five foolish virgins who didn't have enough. Their refusal seems to them uncharitable. The selfless thing would have been for the wise women to share their oil, even if it meant they themselves would have run out. But the story is not about charity. Rather, the parable reveals that when Christ returns, each person must stand on his own or on her own faith, or lack thereof. He said, you will not be saved by the spiritual life of your son or daughter, uh, of your wife or anyone else. The question will be, where do you stand and are you alive in Jesus Christ? Are you ready? End quote. Number four, fourth lesson I think we can glean from this. Going to church for a while, reading the Bible, and starting to change a little, but then walking away really, well, it isn't going to get you into heaven. Okay, I think that was the lesson of verse 8 of our parable. Listen, let me just say it this way. Once again, and, and Jesus reinforced this. Uh, through various parables, especially in chapter 13. But the idea that a person can come to church, hang out with Christians for a while, kind of get into the Word, and begin to make some changes. But then, you know, maybe walk the aisle when the invitation was given, pray a prayer to receive Christ. And after having done that, they can really kind of walk away then, kind of go back to the old life. But in their mind, <laughs> I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer. I go to church once in a while, I read the Bible, you know, once in a while, I'm a Christian. No, uh, that's not true. Again, true Christians remain. I, I'm not saying they don't stumble, they maybe even backslide. But they don't walk away from God and go back into the world for an extended period of time with no, without any conviction. Those folks who do that, who eventually walk away, thinking now they have their bases covered because after all, they went to church for a while, they walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, well... If you don't remain, if you are not walking in the Spirit uh, on a regular basis, it indicates that you were never really saved. And again, Jesus reinforces through different parables. The one I'm thinking of primarily is the parable of the sower. Remember that? A man went out to sow seed in his field. The seed was the word, Jesus said. Uh, the seed fell in different types of soil. That represented different types of human hearts. First, very hard heart. Okay, it didn't penetrate. Well, yeah. We go out there and share the gospel. Some people get out of here, you religious nut job. I don't want to hear it. Okay, we understand that. They're hard-hearted. Some fall, the seed falls on good hearts, good soil, brings forth a good crop. Those are people that receive Christ, and we know they're genuinely saved. He talked about the two middle ones, or the two middle hearts, the shallow heart, the thorny heart. These receive the word, and they start to shoot up, it looks like. They start to grow, and yet, you know, the cares of this life or persecution arises because of the word, they fall away, never bring forth fruit. And Jesus is telling us that there are those who come to church who look like they're growing, but eventually they just fall away because their heart really has not been given over to Jesus. And I believe, guys, that was just the, the point he was making with the five foolish virgins or bridesmaids. They look good for a while, but showed their true nature by their lamps going out. They didn't continue. 
Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says in verse chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Listen to this. He said, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. People walking away from the Lord. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What does that mean, deceitfulness of sin? Your heart hardened. Well, I think in part it could mean there are those who think, and the devil has deceived them into thinking they're Christians because they did go to church when they were younger, or Awanas, or were baptized, confirmed, or later in life they came for a while and walked an aisle and prayed a prayer, like we said. And now they deceive themselves into thinking, that's all I need, I'm good, I'm in. Yet they walk away and get back into the same old things they were doing before they came to church, the carousing and the drinking and the drug abuse. They've deceived themselves into thinking because God is love, isn't that the big thing today? God is love. He doesn't really send anybody to hell. He's a softy. We all make it into heaven, you know. Universalism. That's not what the Bible teaches. So some people have deceived themselves. But the writer says in verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence, our faith, steadfast to the end. That's just indicating a, a true believer is going to hang in. They're not going to walk away from their faith. They're not going to renounce their faith. They might stumble in their faith. Well, they'll never renounce their faith. Go back to the world. And finally, and we'll close with this. When Jesus returns in judgment, it will be too late to receive him as your Savior. I think that's the lesson in verses 10 to 12. And listen, the same applies to a person who dies and stands before Jesus. At that time, the day of opportunity to be saved will have come to an end, and all that will remain is an eternity of darkness and separation from God. Listen to me. I think I said this before I went out of town. I personally believe that hell will be populated with millions upon millions of people who believed in God and who fully intended one day to get their life right with God, but died before they had planned. Come on. None of us ever, we, we always plan to die down the road, right? It's the problem with death. It doesn't always accommodate our timetable. But they fully intended at one point, maybe they're raising the church, they understand who Jesus is, they know what the gospel says. Well, I know i got to live that way, but you know, right now I'm just having too much fun with my buddies, you know. But I'm going to get right with God someday. And then they die before they get their lives right, before they put their faith in Christ. And that was too late. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, look, today, if you hear his voice. Now, I don't know all of you here this morning. I don't know where each of you are at with the Lord. But if God is kind of tugging in your heart right now, as we've been going through this parable, if the Lord is poking your heart, that's good. You know why? It means your heart is not insensate yet. You haven't hardened it so much that you don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit poking you. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. The writer says, look, if you hear God's voice speaking to you right now by getting your life right with him, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, he said, this is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. You know, the Bible says we're not promised tomorrow. God forbid one of you goes home tonight and never sees the light of day tomorrow. It can happen. That's why the Bible admonishes us, look, don't put off till tomorrow to make a commitment to Christ when you may not see tomorrow. And if you die before you make a commitment to Jesus, you, you go into a Christless eternity, you will never again have a chance to receive him and be saved.
You never know if this is going to be the last opportunity you will ever have to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And even if it isn't, and you say no to him today, you just harden your heart a little more for next time. If you say no next time, your heart gets a little harder. And the Bible says eventually you harden your heart so much it's impossible not to be saved. You can no longer feel the poke of the Spirit's conviction. And at that point, the Bible says, and I'll paraphrase, you've passed the spiritual point of no return and have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is the only unforgivable sin. Unforgivable because you've rejected Christ, who the Holy Spirit was trying to bring to you. And there's only forgiveness in Jesus. So this parable has a lot to teach, no matter who you are, okay? But it's important that we interpret it properly if we're going to apply it properly. And hopefully now as we have gone through this, you can see that Jesus keeps pressing the issue of watching, being vigilant, serving faithfully. Because when he comes, he wants to find us serving and walking and working. May God give us grace to do that very thing, to be faithful when he comes. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that in your word, you have constantly challenged us to wake up. Constantly, Lord, have uh, poked at us through the conviction of your spirit to get our lives right. Why? Because you love us. And you want to do for us as Christians all that you can do that we have the most blessed and fruitful eternity as possible in the way of rewards. And Lord, some here today, I don't know, may not know you. I don't know their hearts. But Lord, if anyone is here this morning who has not made a full-on commitment to Jesus Christ, then, Lord, touch their hearts that they would get their lives right right now before the day is done, preferably right now before the service is done. By just saying a simple prayer, I'm a sinner, Lord Jesus. Forgive me, come into my heart, and be my Lord and my Savior. And so, Lord, I leave that to you, to speak to their hearts as only you can. And the rest of us, give us grace, Lord, who are your people, to walk in the light of your truth every day, and not to grow weary in well-doing, not to grow tired in waiting, but, Lord, to keep watching vigilantly, patiently. You're coming. The signs are all there. Give us grace, Lord, to continue serving you faithfully, that when you do come, you can say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.